You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. It's great to be with God, isn't it? To meet with God this morning. Um, and... Yeah, as, as Alan's already said, um, we are sort of in the middle of a bit of a summer patch where we've got a bit of a break from a series and I'm officially a wild card this morning. <laughs> so I'm, I guess I'm sharing with you something that I feel like God's kind of put on my heart and um, something that he's been um, chipping away at a little bit and challenging me on. So I hope it does you good this morning too. And I'm going to unpack some thoughts from uh, 2 Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. So if you have it, feel free to open it. And really this passage, that's 2 Timothy, chapter 3, it asks us to consider the direction of our love and our affection. And we've already talked a little bit about that this morning. Um, It asks us this question, whether we are people who are lovers of pleasure or lovers of God. And to be honest with you, this hasn't been an easy preach to prepare. Maybe it just seems like an obvious choice. Um, but the reality of it, when you kind of dig into it a bit more, it, it's quite kind of challenging. And I, I guess this sort of began way back in sort of the start of the year for me, where, um, you know, we'd just been through quite a lot of COVID restrictions. And I was feeling a bit grumpy. I was a bit grumpy just about the lack of plans. I love a good plan for the year. I love to know what my rhythm looks like, when the holidays are coming, all of that stuff. And I don't know, you know when you just realise you've got a bit too grumpy to the point where God wants to kind of put his finger on something, but it's not quite right. It's it's kind of like, okay, I I think... (laughs) Alan really identifies here, that's great. So yeah, this was bothering me a bit too much. And one morning I actually picked up this book. I don't know if anyone's come across it. It's um, Tim Keller's uh, book um, looking at the Proverbs, like it's a kind of daily devotion. And sometimes I just pick it up if you want a kind of quick thing to do in the morning. It's kind of got gold really in terms of some of the stuff that he brings. And unfortunately that morning I'd arrived on this devotion about comfort. And after reading like a series of lines about comfort, this kind of corker of a line came through from Tim Keller and it says this, what pleasures are perhaps becoming too important to you? Not just giving comfort, but giving you consolation that only God should give. And then the text sort of in here asked me to talk about whether my life evolved around a love of pleasure or a love of God. And it's drawn from this um, particular verse. Um, it's, it's four verses, but I've condensed it down for you. And Paul is saying this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And he then goes on, people will be, and there's like a whole list of sort of vices. And then he concludes with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And something just kind of really connected with me in that moment, this sense of, I've got a choice. Am I a lover of pleasure? Am I a lover of God? I want to be a lover of God in all its sense. 
And then there's the Greek word, here you go, I'll try and attempt some Greek, is philodonos, um, which is lovers of pleasure. And it, it's made up of these sort of two compounds, philio and hedonos. And philio, which is like the love here that it's talking about, it can basically denote an affection so deep that embraces the idea of romance. It's from the same root word, actually, that means kiss. So it's really strong stuff. So to romance ourselves with pleasure, like an indulgent kiss, is quite opposing to loving God with all of our hearts, souls, minds and strength. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis um, who talks about, he says this, we are half-hearted creatures falling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God just wants to help us to pursue our fullest, lasting, deep pleasure in him. And this isn't an easy choice, as I'm going to go on to talk about. It costs us. But it is a stark reality. There are two choices. The two loves are ultimately actually competing for our affection. One of them leads us actually away from God, and one of us leads us towards God where we find pleasure, joy, delight in and through him. So we're going to dive into 2 Timothy, and we're going to have a little look at what's playing out here, and I guess what's led Paul to sort of um, bring this conclusion and bring this before Timothy. Um, So we're going to have a little look at what's happening. We're then going to have a look at, well, actually, what does being a lover of pleasure maybe look like? What what could 2 Timothy tell us a little bit about that? And then we're also going to look and land at what, what it means to be a lover of God. So I hope that sounds okay. So 2 Timothy, it's a letter written by Paul to Timothy. Um, Timothy was one of Paul's co-workers. Um, he'd been given oversight of this vicinity in Ephesus. And that's probably around about modern-day Turkey, if you want to get a sense of where that is. Um, But whilst Paul was writing this, he was actually confined in Rome. He was in the middle of a big legal proceeding, possibly under something a bit like house arrest. So it was a bit tense for Paul. He was feeling a bit isolated, a bit left lonely. And then he's writing to Timothy, who is basically having some problems emerge in the church in Ephesus. These problems are what we're calling opponents. Um, They were aggressively starting to teach stuff that was out of kilter of the gospel. Um, Some of it was sort of a distortion on the resurrection amongst other things. And they were beginning to find their way into houses in the community. And of course, in these times, they would have largely found an audience of women, likely potentially to have been younger widows, And they're actually teaching these women, but taking advantage of their desire and curiosity for learning. And then they were charging them for a sum of money to teach them. 
Now, this sort of contingent of women, this, this was appealing for them. Religion was an acceptable way of self-advancement. It, you know, for, for them, there weren't many acceptable forms of learning and self-advancement, and religion was one of those, and it offered like a lifeline, I guess, for these women in society who were chronically undereducated and disempowered. So the opponents, the false teachers, were sort of preying on this vulnerability, in a sense, and using it as a way to line their pockets. And Paul is saying to Timothy, look, I want you to face a bit of opposition here. I want you to confront these opponents, but do it very wisely and do it very carefully. And as we sort of land on chapter 3, um, Paul is then starting to bring a bit of a prophecy around what probably is in your heading these last days. And it's a bit of a reflection of what maybe Paul is saying about what's kind of playing out in the last days, but also perhaps insinuating some of the behaviours that he's starting to see emerging in the church with these opponents or false teachers, we could call them too. So we're going to just have a little look um, at the scripture. So, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's kind of classic Paul, this, isn't it? Goes in hard. (laughs) So, on to lovers of pleasure. So, what leads to our obsession for pleasure? And I've not pulled out all of these vices. I'm not going to talk about all of them in order. I guess I've pulled out a few things that have really jumped out to me as I've, I've read the text. And I guess I'm, I'm bouncing off this to answer this question. So first of all, pursuit of self. So the text begins with, they will be lovers of themselves. And It's just interesting that that's the first thing that Paul starts off with and how all of the rest sort of follow that pattern of self-love. And this one's quite hard because this is where the Bible is really uncomfortably at odds with our society today that preaches self-love all of the time. But I do want to say that in essence, self-love without a reference to God is actually establishing an anti-God disposition. It becomes egotism, selfishness, and it stands in opposition to kind of a God-centeredness. And in the case of this text, there are perhaps 
absence of self-love driving both the behavior of the opponents and women. You know, self-love preaches to us that we need to look after ourselves in whatever means possible. And sometimes we see permutations of this in society through grasping power, control, status, either to exploit others or because we ourselves might have been exploited. That seems kind of reasonable and fair sometimes, doesn't it? But, you know, God calls us to find ourselves in him. You know, self-love cannot compare to the overwhelming relief of true love and acceptance found in God. And as children of God, we don't have to actively strive to love ourselves more or seize out of our lack of what we've maybe experienced or treatment by others. But rather, our task is to come more and more to see ourselves as God sees us. True self-love is an acceptance of ourselves as redeemed people of God. So guard against self-love in all of its various other forms, but kind of take a jump into that deluge of self-giving limitless love found in Jesus. Secondly, they will be lovers of money. Oh, I'm going to go there. (laughs) You know, we actually watch these opponents um, lining their pockets out of means of the gospel. And yeah, we see some of those subtle abuses probably today. Um, Sadly, there are people who maybe do that. And let's just be aware of that. Let's um, be alert to that as the people of God. But I do want to talk more generally about perhaps us and where we might land with this particular issue right now. Um, you know, Jesus talks a lot about money, doesn't he? It, it's, it's there throughout the New Testament so much. And he's not against our enjoyment and our blessing. Yeah, not at all. But he is interested in how money and how possessions actually get to grip our hearts and our motives. And earlier, actually, in Timothy, 1 Timothy, is is this scripture. Command those who are rich, which is probably largely all of us living in the West, let's let's face that fact, um, not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You know, the temptation right now, we're seeing seeing this in the news all the time, cost of living crisis, cost of living crisis, is that this becomes our narrative as the people of God. You know, our narrative, cost of living crisis, will mean we want to grasp more, we want to pull back on generosity, And actually, one of the vices is ungratefulness that Paul shares. We we become ungrateful. We become dissatisfied in what we've got. We focus on meeting our needs, failing to take each and every day as God's provision and kindness to us in whatever means that looks like. You know, whether we're facing seasons of plenty or seasons of lack, which some of us may be beginning to feel. 
But God doesn't call us to live by the narrative out there. He calls us to live by his story. The God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who sustains all things, which includes the global oil supplies, yeah? He doesn't fret and he is seated. So just keep growing in the grace of giving, keep growing in gratitude, keep trusting him to sustain and supply all of your needs in this season. The scripture explicitly uses these words about the situation here going on in Ephesus, and particularly around the the women here, they're always learning but not acknowledging the truth. You know, this situation is a bit tricky, isn't it? Because these false teachers are, and, and the women are kind of feeding off one another because they're lining their pockets and the women are kind of getting this self-advancement and this learning and it's like a hope to kind of, yeah, get them out of their kind of status, I guess. And they've been given the worst kind of possible kind of religious training, but because they're curious, it's kind of feeding their desire to understand the gospel but it's not giving them and bringing them to a place of true freedom. You know, Paul, he can sound a bit harsh in this text, but he's not looking to ridicule the women in this text. But he is condemning them for allowing themselves to be taken in. And I'm going to go back to the word hedonos, which is the word for pleasure. And I've kind of had a little look at where this comes up in the New Testament, and it's really interesting the various different places that it it appears. And one of the places it comes up is in the parable of the sower. And you may be aware of this kind of scripture where the kind of word of God falls in different places. And one of them is this, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries riches and pleasures and they do not mature and it's talking here that word pleasure you know pleasure chokes up the word of God and it fails to let it bear fruit you know for others of us we might find that we are starting to be fed on all kinds of subtle distortions of the gospel and it can happen very you know gradually very subtly in our lives Maybe it's like the women where we are starting to just sort of accommodate it and reshape it a little bit because it feels a bit more comfortable if we think this rather than this. And back to that kind of self-love, you know, it kind of meets my needs more if I think about the gospel in this particular way. One of the commentators on this text, I I just read this and I was like, wow, by it, and I'm going to read it to you, says this, like, Whenever one reaches the point where the gospel or the faith has been completely molded into a shape that one feels most comfortable to live with, the gospel has been incarcerated. Its teeth have been removed. You know, to kind of cage the gospel is, is a way to kind of almost stop listening to it, to stop learning, to stop delving into the kind of riches and depths of understanding that we find time and time again. You know, the gospel is is wild. It wants to seek out the really weak spots in our life. 
It refuses to allow us to live comfortably in our understanding of faith or to cherish our own personal interpretations. And finally, on lovers of pleasure, one of the things playing out here, slightly more subtly actually, not as explicitly, is an unwillingness to count the cost of suffering or hardship. You know, if you are on the kind of track of um, a life of pleasure, a love of pleasure, you know, suffering is very inconvenient, isn't it? Um, and it's actually very unwelcomed. I mean, it, it is for any of us. <laughs> but throughout 2 Timothy, you know, Paul is constantly sort of reminding Timothy, um, if you're going to come and oppose these false teachers, you know, you're going to have to embrace a little bit of suffering here. Um, this isn't going to be easy. And, and earlier in 2 Timothy, he sort of, I guess, emulates himself as the example, as one who has suffered for the faith. And he, he's trying to basically say that understanding suffering and engaging with it and being willing to walk in it is intrinsic to a proper understanding of Christian existence. You know, the story of God is like a narrative of suffering, but also rescue and deliverance. And we see it like right through the scriptures in the Old Testament prophets, the suffering servant through to the Messiah, Jesus. Suffering will come, but the Lord will deliver. I think sometimes as Christians, we don't grasp the fact that Suffering is not just about poor individuals going through the mill, like poor kind of Jimmy in church, you know, he's, he's really struggling, like he's having a really hard time, we need to really take care of him. It's, it's not about that, it's a collective pattern of the righteous. It encompasses the whole community of believers marking us out as his people, you know, I don't find suffering easy and rarely would I tend to gloat in suffering or consider it you know, sheer joy. And I've had some tough patches in my life, largely focused around grief and loss. Um, I lost my dad to cancer at the age of seven. That was tough. And in the last few years, we lost two babies like we've previously shared through an early and a late miscarriage. And both those experiences have been immensely sad, traumatic. But you know what? I haven't suffered in the way that Paul did as he preached Jesus. My life is a far cry from imprisonment, persecution, interrogation, beatings. But in every moment I have experienced, I've known God to be faithful. There's beauty in being able to share more deeply with Christ and share a little bit more in his sufferings and catapulting me to this glorious future and hope that I'll enjoy forever. You know, as a community of believers, we shouldn't be surprised when it comes our way. We should be ready and patient as we endure. And it's a real distinctive over being a lover of pleasure or a lover of God. So, on to lovers of God. 
Hopefully I've painted the dichotomy already a little bit. Um, and hopefully maybe the choice seems plain. It might not do to you this morning, and that's, that's okay. We're comfortable with journeying with you in that. But how do we orientate our love towards God? You know, there's so much I could say here, and to be honest, I really struggle with this as I was preparing this. This bit should have been the easy bit, <laughs> but I'd written like four neat kind of points, and it's just like, this isn't doing, it's not jump-starting my heart, so I don't know if it's going to jump-start yours. So I just know how stubborn I can be when it comes to loving God, and how disconnected that love can feel. I don't know if you're anything like me, but God had to slightly sort of wreck me, I guess, in the process of trying to work out what it is to set, what it is that he wants me to say here. And we've kind of touched on it a little bit this morning already, but the, the reality of loving God is, is literally like deep heart business. And it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit that is outside of our efforts, capabilities, humanly speaking, you know, God in his absolute grace and mercy takes hold of us. He's the one who calls us out in the first place to be lovers of him as we begin this kind of eternal pursuit and love of relationship with him. We recognize all the more so our fickle nature, our fluctuating attempts to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But our failure, again, is met with deep loving kindness. God's altogether brilliance and his radiance and his righteousness through Jesus that is our, his reply to our heap of kind of colossal inconsistencies. We find like his spirit starts to quicken us as sons and daughters. Our desires so easily tempered are satisfied again and again by his love and his mercy, his prevailing faithfulness, his altogether tenderness, his fiercely loyal covenant towards us. You know, we get to Jesus and we, we find this invitation. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know, this promise of a living water, spirit of God that seeps into our souls, that quenches our deepest needs, that turns our affections and our desires. And our response is adoration and something like this. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You know, if you're not a Christian here this morning, um, maybe your heart's pounding and there's a moment for you here to choose. And maybe the Holy Spirit is turning your love and affection towards Jesus. Just respond to that. I'd encourage you to respond to that this morning. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and actually you're not feeling this at all. You're feeling dead and this is just nonsensical stuff. How can I grasp this? I just want to ask you, are you wholly, completely satisfied 
Where else can you go that provides this so beautifully, eternally? Now, some of us may recognize ourselves on this God-loving pursuit, and I just want to say a couple of really short things that might help us here. Firstly, um, when the chips are down and you're struggling and your heart is feeling tempted away, sometimes you literally have to speak to your soul (laughs) to tell it to wake up, wake up. You know, I sometimes have to get in a room, close the door, pace around the room, wake up my soul, wake up my soul. (laughs) I'm quite a sort of emotional person and I don't know if any of you have ever looked at Myers-Briggs. I do this for work, but I'm sort of off the charts when it comes to the F bit, which is the bit that really values like relationships and people and all of that. And so when it comes to meeting with God, this is really important for me. You know, I want to feel it. I want to feel this sense of spiritual high every day. I want to feel it with God. But you know, there just aren't those highs every day, are there? Sometimes it feels dry and it feels honest and it feels discipline, it feels fake, and it feels forced. But you know, that, those moments when we do do it, when we're with him and we start enjoying him and we start talking to him, it's precious to him because it's costly for us. And secondly, um, we still have a battle to keep our hearts undivided. We have an enemy who wants to disorientate our love. And I love this scripture, which, which comes from Proverbs 4, um, which says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Um, when I was a teenager, maybe sort of mid-teens, um, we didn't have a youth leader at our church that we're part of, and we had this kind of 70-something old guy step in and decide to do it, and we were all a bit like, oh. Um, but like, he was really passionate about kind of teaching the word of God, and he used to just say this scripture to me again and again, guard your heart, Emily, for it's the wellspring of life. And he used to even like slip it to me on like pieces of paper, like putting it in my Bible, like guard your heart. And I kind of didn't really get what it was about. I was like, what, what is this guarding the heart thing? I don't quite get it. What are you on about? Um, but it's probably, you know, if you're a teenager here, it's probably like one of the best pieces of sort of spiritual advice you could give in, in that kind of season. You know, God despite his very deliberate pursuit of us, still gives us a choice, you know, in how we respond to him. And sometimes we are dealing with a battle in the heart. And what does this mean to guard your heart? Well, I I think it means facing up to sin and keeping a clean conscience before God. And there's this commentate on Proverbs, which I've, I've heard this a few times, I've just added it in here, like, he talks about the heart as a citadel, I love this, the heart, if the heart be seized, the whole man, the affections, desires, motives, pursuits, all be yielded up. The heart is the vital part of the body. A wound here is instant death. It's the vital spring of the soul, both of sin and holiness. Therefore, above all keeping, Keep thine heart. So here we go. 
there's a choice. Are you a lover of pleasure? Are you on that track? Do you sometimes veer that way? Do you need to get back on the other side? Or are you a lover of God? You know, let's land today by taking a moment to centre back on him. Rachel and the van, if you want to come up. Let's, let's centre ourselves on the glorious person that he is. Let's confirm or reconfirm our choice to pursue him, even though it costs us. Let's find our deepest joy and need and affection found again in him and probably wonderfully surpassed. And really the best way we can conclude today and the pinnacle of our service is to share in who Jesus is again through communion, through the bread and the wine, his body, his blood. You know, he's given for us. This sustains our love. This keeps it going and going and going. You know, he's done it once and for all to draw us back in, take hold of our hearts, take hold of our lives, to put us on a track with him that endures and lasts for eternity. It's in this moment as we take this that we get to embrace that. So yeah, can I encourage you to participate in communion now this will be the end of our time together um, but to just share and enjoy in the delight of our God thank you Rachel